Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Chapter 26 It had become an incessant refrain. Time was running out. In the late winter of 1936, Walt and Roy had closed a new distribution deal with RKO, a much larger operation than United Artists, and one with more clout in the marketplace, marketplace which was what the Disneys needed. The big studios that have their own cartoons practically give away their cartoons with their feature pictures, Roy wrote his parents shortly after signing with RKO. We, all of the time, have to stand on our own feet without any tie-in with any other product. Walt had been dissatisfied with UA for some time, complaining that the distributor was taking too big a share of the foreign receipts and insisting that while competitive cartoons are falling by the wayside fast, Disney cartoons were steadily increasing in audience value. When Roy importuned Walt to give UA a chance, Walt wrote back disgustedly, If you would resign from UA and come over and work for Disney for a while, we might be able to make some headway. In repentance, I suggest that you give them the plant, our trademarks, patents and copyrights, and work for them on a salary. Or if perhaps they are not satisfied with this, I can go and get a job with mints and you can sell vacuum cleaners again. In the end, with the blessings of the United Artists themselves, Chaplin wrote Lessing that I don't want to make any money on Walt, and anything I can ever do for him I will gladly perform, the Disneys departed. One of the stated reasons for severing ties with UA was that it had wanted to retain television rights, and Walt, who had taken an early and avid interest in television, refused to grant them. A more likely reason, though, was that Walt and finally Roy, too, wanted the power of RKO behind Snow White and RKO's chairman, M. H. Aylesworth, in announcing the compact with Disney, said, Personally, I've seen enough of his first feature-length cartoon, Snow White, to realize that it will rate as one of the most unusual features ever turned out in the field of animated cartoons. Of course, Aylesworth couldn't have seen much of Snow White at that point because there was very little to show. But Walt was eager to please his new distributor, which was apparently one of the reasons he embarked on the old mill, to make a big splash. In, con in contracting to provide six silly symphonies and twelve Mickey Mouses, these included Donald Duck cartoons as well, for the coming year, after he had fulfilled his UA obligations, Walt intended to make at least half of the symphonies of the very beautiful, charming type with musical fantasy stuff and urged RKO to sell them as a block, which enables us to put in subjects about which we may feel inspired rather than just slapstick comedies. But if Walt was determined to impress RKO, RKO was determined to get Snow White, and Walt had committed himself to presenting a print in November 1937 for a Christmas release. Now he was under tremendous pressure to deliver. After what had amounted to years of deliberation and procrastination, he had reached the winter of 1937 with virtually the entire film left to animate and less than 10 months to do so. Indeed, though the animation had begun in 1936, the first cells weren't sent to ink and paint until January 4, 1937, and didn't reach the camera department until March 13th. Many felt that to have the finished picture ready for showing by Christmas 1937 was impossible, Dave Hand later confessed, but we responsible ones never wavered. 
Walt spent the spring either sweat-boxing roughs for hours on end, usually whenever an animator had finished enough to show him, even if the entire scene was not complete, or meeting for long stretches with the storymen to refine sequences that had not yet gone to animation, once again line by line, inflection by inflection. The scene in which the dwarves enter their cottage, thinking it is inhabited by ghosts, one of the first discussed and one that had already been subjected to dozens of meetings, was the subject of another twenty meetings from early January to the end of September, many of them at night, and those were only the and those were only the sessions with Walt in attendance. By July, Walt was in the sweat box all day long, day after day, examining roughs. There was no detail, not a nod, a wink, an emphasis, or a posture that wasn't still being analyzed. The animators felt tremendous pressure, Ollie Johnston said, and tempers began to flare. Dave Hand, the supervising director, reached the point where he couldn't talk to an animator without screaming. When Les Clark had trouble with a scene and tried to explain his problems, Hand exploded, knocking the drawing board into the air and bellowing, We gotta get the picture out! Aware that he was becoming a target of the animator's wrath, Hand protested, My criticism is all impersonal and I don't hesitate to criticize anybody in the studio excepting Walt. But tensions ran so high that Han did criticize Walt. Han had objected that one that one prospective scene played too long, and when Walt offered to perform it to prove that it wasn't too long, Han secretly started a stopwatch in his pocket, then pulled it out to show by how much Walt had exceeded the allotted time. By Han's own admission, Walt was boiling mad and stalked out of the room. Trying to avoid these confrontations, Hal Adelquist, who had been named the head assistant director early in February, advised his staff not to take issues to Hand or Walt because they absolutely had to. We must avoid taking up the time of men who are making more money and whose time is therefore worth more, he said. But this created another problem. Employees doubted whether the orders they received had really come from Walt, prompting one department to head to ask one department head to ask Walt to give his staff a pep talk. Walt responded by offering to throw them a dinner as a way both of asserting his authority and of lessening tensions, since a dinner might put them in a more receptive mood and make the evening more beneficial to them. It wasn't the only time Walt had to boost flagging spirits. Many of the animators were now despairing of ever completing the project satisfactorily, and Walt complained that once scenes were finished and ready for cleanup, the animators seemed to lose the initiative in assuring that everything was ready for the camera. This picture is a tremendous thing, Adelquist told the assistant directors, delivering instructions from Walt. You think you will never be finished. There seems to be twice as much work on your desk at night when you leave, but if you will just keep plugging and checking, I'm sure you will find that things will work out all right. Once again, needing more in-betweeners to rush the animation through, the studio was calling for trainees, taking out ads in magazines, or recruiting at art schools. George Drake went to Schwingard himself to enlist artists, and running the prospects through an expedited program, all the while reinforcing how important their mission was in getting out Snow White. But with all the emphasis on speed, there was always the contradictory message of quality. 
At one class that June, Bill Titla, indoctrinating the students in the Disney method, told them, The work now being planned and the work they will continue to do here will call for men who can draw to beat hell, not just in the conventional sense, but men who have absolute control over what they are trying to do. The men who are surviving realize this. And he continued, Today we are really on the verge of something that is new. It will take a lot of real drawing. Not clever, slick, superficial, fine-looking stuff, but real, solid, fine drawing to achieve these results. As the summer approached and the deadline loomed, Hand took drastic action. For over a year, the animators had been viewing live-action films, not only of the dwarfs, but of the witch, who was played variously by a stage actor named Nestor Pavia, and by the man who would voice the magic mirror, Moroni Olsen, dressed in drag, and of Snow White, who was played by Marjorie Belcher, the teenage daughter of a local dance instructor. She would later marry dancer and choreographer Gower Champion and form a popular dance team with him in the 1950s. Walt had even attempted to combine live footage of Belcher with a model of the dwarf's cottage as designed by Albert Herder. These films were intended to provide inspiration or suggest movement and behavior. I think you can use this live action to get personalities, etc., that you are bound to absorb ideas that creep into your work, Fred Moore said at one meeting, while Art Babbitt, saying that the animators had been focusing too narrowly on mechanics, claimed that we are getting something now that would take us years and years to acquire. By February, all the important action of the dwarfs was being shot live first, and the animators were actually going to the soundstage and directing the live-action scenes themselves, with Pinto Colvig putting on a big nose and playing Grumpy or Sneezy, or Eddie Collins playing Dopey or Dave Hand or Percy Pierce playing the other dwarfs to an audio playback of the dialogue. The animator then watched the developed film through a viewfinder and chose poses he liked. Walt feared that the animators would wind up copying the live action, stressed the point over and over again that when drawing models, get the feeling behind the models instead of copying them, Babbitt told one meeting in expressing Walt's view, and explicitly ordered, as Sharpstein recalled, that he did not want any animators tracing that character and putting it on the screen as a tracing. They had to use it only as a guide. But under the increasing pressure, Walt's order was breached. The staff had to trace live action, what was called rotoscoping, to finish the film on time. Live action is what is going to lick the picture, Hand announced at one luncheon meeting in mid-February. Though Ham Lusk was recommending that they bring in child actors to play the dwarfs in scale, this was especially true of Snow White and the Queen, the human characters that were still proving so difficult to animate well. Already by March, Percy Pierce was suggesting that they do more rotoscoping of Snow White. There is a lot of Snow White that has to be worked out in rotoscope. And by June, photostats of the Queen coming and down the stairs were being given to the in-betweeners to trace. There were certainly misgivings about having to do this, a sense of almost cheating, though the live action often betrayed how far the animators, the animators still had to go to capture reality. You look at some of that live action, Eric Larson admitted years later, and it was actually more animated than we finally got on the screen in some, some instances. Still, Walt was adamant that the rotoscoping be concealed from the public. In preparing the publicity campaign, he dictated that no live action be shown. 
I want this definitely left out as people will get the wrong impression of it, he wrote Publicity Chief Roy Scott. The only thing we might say is that we use live models for the purposes of studying action, etc., but we do not photograph live action and blow up our drawings from same. Although, in fact, that was exactly what they did. There was so little time, and now more measures were needed to meet the deadline and tighten the film itself. Scenes had to be snapped up, Walt said, retaining all the good business, but snapping it up and taking out the excess dialogue, and the snapping up even extended to cutting scenes altogether. As early as November 1936, storyman Dick Creedon had suggested the possibility of lopping two scenes, one in which the dwarves meet to discuss whether they should let Snow White stay, or fearing repercussions from the Queen make her leave, and another in which the dwarves, having resolved to let her stay, decide to build her a bed so that she will not want to leave. I don't think it has any purpose in the story now, and will divert us at a point where we should start building our suspense tempo, Creedon asserted. Unconvinced, Walt proceeded to have the scenes animated anyway, as well as another in which the dwarfs are eating soup under the reproachful eye of Snow White, who is trying to teach them manners, though he warned of the bed, of the bed building. Take out all the superfluous stuff. The scenes were still in the picture as late as June 1937. They hadn't even been finalized until April. But Walt, like Creedon, finally decided they had to go because they disrupted the flow of the narrative. Ward Kimball, who had animated the bulk of the soup-eating sequence, was crushed. He had spent nearly a year and a half on the section. As Walt cut and rushed and pressed, the animators began to buckle under the pressure. As they fell behind schedule, one rumor had it that the Bank of America would soon take over the company. A prospect, wrote animator Seamus Culhane, that created a feeling of tension in the studio that almost made the air crackle. Yet even as they were urged to speed up, they felt dread in producing anything that might disappoint Walt, and dread in letting anyone else clean up and possibly sap their drawing's energy, so they withheld their footage from final cleanup even after it had been approved, resulting in a massive slowdown just when things should have been accelerating. You fellows are all trying to get your work as good as possible, Dave Hand told them ruefully, after learning that they were spending an average of two hours on each drawing. We are in sympathy with that, but we are not in sympathy with the fact that you are so carefully watching every detail that you are not allowing it to move through. An odd admonition at a studio where everyone knew Walt himself carefully watched every detail. It was a sign of the growing desperation that by July, animators were being asked not to have their scenes cleaned up, but rather to finish the details in the rough state, as this will be complete enough for the inking of this fast action. By this point, some of the animators were so benumbed that they found release by doing sketches of a nude Snow White surrounded by tumescent dwarfs. Away, opined Ward Kimball, to challenge the suffocating perfection of Walt Disney's world. As they headed into the fall, the staff was working 24 hours a day in 8-hour shifts, and many of them worked on Saturdays and Sundays as well, for which, as further proof of their commitment to the cult, they received no overtime pay. The animation light boards would grow so hot that the artists could burn their arms and hands. So many cells remained to be photographed that the camera department worked in two 12-hour shifts from 8 o'clock to 8 o'clock. 
Effects specialist Cy Young needed surgery but postponed it because he was working on the ideal achievement. And when one animator asked for a leave because he was having to support his two brothers and their families, and because he felt he was in a rut, Walt snapped, I suggest you get down to business and forget all about the situation and make the best of the opportunities you have here. To help out in... To help out in ink and paint, Walt borrowed curls from the Harmon Ising studio, headed by two of his old Kansas, Kansas City colleagues, who had recently lost a contract to produce cartoons for MGM. As for the shorts, Roy prepared to farm some out to Harmon Ising, while the entire studio shifted to Snow White, opining that RKO should have no cause of action, since Walt would remain the nominal supervisor. With all this additional help, Roy wrote Gunther Lessing, it should increase our chances considerably of getting Snow White out by Christmas. In the event, the studio discontinued the shorts entirely until the feature was finished. But whatever pressures his staff suffered, the greatest pressures were on Walt Disney himself. Though he took a two-week business trip to New York in mid-May, in part to plan the publicity for Snow White with RKO, he was effectively holed up at the studio. Unexpected business has come up that requires my being at the studio all day Saturday, he wired one acquaintance that July, begging off a social engagement, working like hell, trying to get feature finished. Excusing himself from another social obligation, he wired film producer Hal Roach, the super colossal Snow White has me hogtied, and our entire studio is working nights to get the picture out for Christmas. And Walt was not working only on Snow White. That August, he was already meeting with Storymen to set the structure for the first part of Bambi, and in November, he was, devo he was devoting many of his mornings to a short adapted from Monroe Leaf's book, Ferdinand, about a shy effet bull who didn't want to fight in the ring. Added to all these demands was another terribly familiar one, money. When, at the outset, Walt, and Walt had told Roy that Snow White was likely to cost around $250,000, he was wildly miscalculating, as he later confessed, since silly symphonies, wait, since by the late 1930s they were spending roughly that much on every three silly symphonies. Still, when Roy approached the Bank of America for a loan in August 1935, realizing that the entire financing would have to come from outside the studio, he asked for that amount. Our only difficulty in securing the money, he wrote Walt confidently, I believe will be because of the length of time involved in making the feature and not the condition of our business. But as the length of time and production dragged on, the budget was ballooning. They had been forced to take another loan from the Bank of America for $630,000 in May 1936, and yet another for an additional $650,000 in March 1937 to be secured by the residual value of the short subjects. This was what Walt meant when he told a reporter that I had to mortgage everything I owned, including Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and everybody else, to make Snow White. Now tensions with Roy surfaced. Roy was very brave and manly until the costs passed over a million, Walt said a few years later. He wasn't used to figures over a 100,000 at that time. The extra cipher threw him. When costs passed the one and a half million mark, Roy didn't even bat an eye. He couldn't. 
He was paralyzed. In fact, Roy did everything he could to press Walt to reduce the budget, even inviting their Bank of America liaison, Joe Rosenberg, to the studio to have a talk with him, which was the ultimate ploy since Walt never dealt with the money man. The Yale-educated Rosenberg was new to Hollywood, though he was hardly a tenderfoot. As a young man, he had ridden a horse 320 miles from Nevada to Arizona, to Arizona and forded the Colorado River to claim a job to claim a job a friend had promised and he had worked as a surveyor for a Mexican railroad and as a mining engineer before changing course and entering banking when Bank of America head Doc Giannini assigned him to the Disney account and to Snow White Rosenberg began making calls to Hollywood notables some warned him off the subject but producer Walter Winger or Wanger one of Walt's polo cronies told him Joe if Disney does this thing as well as I know he's going to do it millions of people will love of it. Rosenberg later said that was all he needed to hear, but now Walt was chafing under the financial strain. As Rosenberg later remembered it, when he came to the studio early in 1937 to plead with Walt, Walt groused that bankers were all a bunch of SOBs. Walt denied he said it, insisting he just called them goddamn bankers. Unfortunately, as Snow White inched forward, with Walt spending $20,000 a week, he needed the goddamn bankers. Though Roy had written Walt after the March loan that we are confident it is sufficient for our purposes, at least until way late in the year. By September, the studio was in need of another infusion of cash. That month, after the Disneys had asked for yet another loan, this one for $327, $327,000, Rosenberg came to the studio one tense Saturday afternoon to watch a rough cut of Snow White grudgingly hosted by Walt. Rosenberg sat through the screening silently, while Walt nervously explained how certain scenes that were now just in pencil sketch would later be inked and colored. Even after the screening, as they headed to the parking lot, Rosenberg avoided talking about the film, only heightening the tension. When Rosenberg reached his car, he slid inside, said goodbye, and deadpanned, that thing is going to make you a hatful of money. Then he drove off. Or at least that was how Walt would tell it years later, as another example of his fortitude and the rightness of his vision. In fact, for all his professed reluctance to let anyone see Snow White before its completion, he had screened the color rushes of the film on the soundstage early one evening in September for the studio staff. According to Frank Thomas, Walt was still so innocent and unsophisticated that he hurried Lillian from home for fear that they wouldn't have a seat. It was a triumphant evening. As Walt wrote RKO head Ned Depeney, despite the fact that most of the audience have been pretty close to the development of Snow White for the past two and a half years, their reaction was all that could be hoped for from any audience. Walt had passed out a questionnaire. Since Morkovan had worked at the studio, Walt routinely passed out questionnaires at the studio screenings, asking whether any sections seemed too long, or whether any business was objectionable, or whether any character's personality seemed inconsistent over the course of the picture, and also for a scene-by-scene -scene analysis. Of the 359 respondents, only one said he didn't enjoy the film. Stick to shorts, the dissident apparently wrote on his card, words Walt would thereafter employ as a way of cutting anyone who displayed faulty judgment, and there's a note there. 
Longtime employee John Hinge would later say that Roy was the culprit, though this seems unlikely since Roy was supportive of the project from the inception. If you were trying to sell an idea that did not gel or go over in a meeting, Thomas and Johnston remembered, suddenly there would be this loud aha, and Walt's finger would come shooting out toward you. In a triumphant voice, he would explain, you must be the guy who said stick to shorts. And for that day, you were the guy, and everyone else would keep looking at you and wondering. For Snow White, however, the dissenters were few. Diane Disney, who wasn't quite four years old at the time, watched the film at a screening on the soundstage while peeking through her fingers and began to bawl when the queen turned into the crone. The child was promptly escorted from the room. Obviously, my reaction didn't deter my father from making the movie he envisioned, she would later say. Nearly everyone else seemed elated by what they saw, even cautious Roy. I am so glad you are so enthusiastic about the way Snow White looks, Kay Kamen, the head of the studio's merchandising arm, wrote him. I am just thrilled. It's really big-time stuff. When Walt screened 1,000 feet of the film for Joe Rosenberg, Depeney, and several other RKO executives on that Saturday afternoon, September 14th, they seemed equally enthusiastic. Depeney congratulated Walt on the picture and on his courage in making it and said it would make plenty of money, then fired off a telegram to RKO chairman M.H. Aylesworth raving about the film. Ned says your investment will be returned many times over, Aylesworth wrote Walt. In fact, according to Gunther Lessing, who also attended the screening, the only one who didn't seem especially effusive was Rosenberg. He followed Lessing to his office, declared himself satisfied with the film, and then met with Walt to warn him not to spend any money on Bambi until Snow White was completed. He also expressed his own concern that the film wouldn't be finished by Christmas. If he thought it would make a hatful of money, he didn't appear to have told Lessing or Walt, despite Walt's recollection. The fact that money was just instrumental for Walt, a way for him to make his films, explains why he was so often at loggerheads with Roy, who was charged with providing that money. He keeps on hollering that I'm spending too much money on Snow White, Walt complained to his staff one day. I can't be strapped down by a limited budget. At any other studio where the moneymen typically held the upper hand, Walt would have been curbed long before. It was only because he owned the studio himself and because it was his brother who held the key to the treasury that he hadn't been reined in and was allowed to spend. Among other things, Walt continued to insist that the staff be well compensated, despite the economic stringencies, both to get better work from them during the stretch run on Snow White and to fulfill his fantasy of a guild of happy artists. In February, he tore up Sharpstein's contract and awarded him a new one at $200 a week for three years. By April, he was already handing out salary adjustments on Snow White, $2,500 to Fred Moore, $3,900 to Dave Hand and Sharpstein, and $5,200 to Ham Lusk. Most of these were paid out as additional increments in salary, though Walt would also give an animator a cash sum, a cash sum as he did for Bill Titla that April, if he thought the employee was being underpaid or in advance if a man needed it. 
yet his generosity seemed to do little to energize the process, and the animators still seemed to be limping to the finish line. Though the average footage approved for cleanup should have been 50 feet a week if they were to make their Christmas deadline, the animators were averaging only half that as late as August. In a studio breakdown of how much footage each animator was producing each day, the results were startlingly low. Among them, Titla won... Titla, um, I guess one foot ten inches, Babbitt two feet two inches, Ferguson four feet seven inches, Moore two feet one inch, Thomas three feet one inch. Having worked on the picture the longest, Titla and Moore would have the most final footage in the film, 944 feet and 974 feet respectively. Moreover, the cumbersome multiplane slowed progress even further. As late as September, many of the staff were conceding that the film probably wouldn't be ready by Christmas, and the animators were drawing right through October and into early November trying to make the schedule. The final animation wasn't completed until November 11th, the last cells weren't painted until November 27th, and the final photography wasn't done until December 1st, just six days before the first scheduled sneak preview and just barely in time to make the general release. It had gotten around to the theaters that there were no prints, animator Bill Pete recalled, and we were all scared to death. The final scenes, Snow White on her beer after taking a bite from the poison apple, the dwarfs placing flowers around her, her being awakened and riding off with the prince, had been saved for last, largely because Walt understood that they were the most difficult in the film. They were the scenes in which the audience would be invited to cry along with the dwarves, an emotional province that animations had not previously entered, and they would constitute the major test of the film's effectiveness, though by this time Walt had little doubt they would succeed. There is going to be a lot of sympathy for this little for these little fellows, he said at a story conference that July. We can tear their, the audience's hearts out if we want to by putting in a little crying. Frank Thomas, Fred Moore's one-time assistant, was given the assignment of animating the dwarf's grief from Albert Herder's drawings, and he animated it with as little movement as possible, basically held poses with tears crawling down the dwarf's cheeks, and as Walt had instructed at a story meeting, concentrating on Grumpy when he breaks down and starts to cry, cracking his stoic facade. As with every scene, Walt tinkered with this one before cleanup. The movement on the dwarfs is too abrupt. As it is now, there are two sort of hold positions on Grumpy that seem out of character, then suddenly he breaks. Stagger the blinks on the animals instead of having them all blink at once, and then he was finished. Whether he liked it or not, he had to be finished in order to, in order to deliver the film on schedule. But he didn't like doing it. When the animators were being rushed in late spring, Dave Hans said that Walt is actually tearing out his heart okaying some of the stuff which you know he would like to see better, and then excused him, saying he is trying to move the picture as best he can. At one sweatbox session, Walt lamented that the dwarfs acted as if they were following directions on an exposure sheet, and not as if they knew in their minds what they were going to do. At another, he bemoaned that the magic mirror seemed to be working too hard to say his words. And at another, he criticized the queen for looking as if she was carrying a big load of laundry, for moving suddenly without anticipation, and for having eyebrows that were too extreme. He was especially rough on Fred Moore, who had animated the dwarfs, 
sitting with him in the sweat box and repeatedly reviewing his scenes, fixating again and again on the size of one of Grumpy's fingers, which Moore, intentionally or not, had refused to correct until Walt ordered him to do so. He even grumbled that he found Adriana Casalotti's singing voice too strident. When anybody sings, it should be good or he shouldn't sing at all, Walt told the staff, and all along he was aware of the real danger that he himself posed to his beloved project, even as he was shepherding it, that it would lose spontaneity from the constant revisions. Watch to keep it from sounding like it had been well rehearsed, he warned at the end of one story conference. We want spontaneous feeling in it. In the end, even after all the final touches had been applied, Walt, ever the perfectionist, was disappointed. We worked hard and spent a lot of money, and by this time were a little tired of it, he confessed to one journalist shortly after its completion. I've seen so much of Snow White that I am conscious only of the places where it could be improved. You see, we've learned such a lot since we started this thing. I wish I could yank it back and do it all over again. Even more than a decade later, Walt was sighing over the film's flaws. There were some things in Snow White that make me crawl when I see them now, he said. The bridge on her nose floats all over her face, and the prince jitters like he's got palsy. He was especially perturbed by the latter, so perturbed that Roy even suggested they reanimate the scene to eliminate the shimmying. Walt leaped at the offer, saying it would cost another 250000 to $300,000. As Roy related it, I'd said forget it. Snow White would be released with the shimmy. If they had been flying blind in making the feature, they were also flying blind in promoting and distributing it. They had had experience in publicizing shorts. They had no experience in publicizing a feature film. Nevertheless, after the film's reception at the studio screenings, Walt was confident, almost too confident. He was fond of telling how, before Snow White's release, many in the industry and the press had disparaged the project and called it Disney's Folly, which one paper actually did, but this was most likely just more self-dramatization of Walt overcoming another purported hurdle, since there seemed, if anything, to be tremendous anticipation of the film almost from its inception. Indeed, at Walt's May meeting in New York with the RKO publicity staff, he encouraged them not to think that the picture would sell itself just because it was a novelty. I want everybody to be sold on it so they won't be underestimating or overestimating the power of the picture to draw on its own, he apprised Roy of his plan. I think we will have to do a lot of indirect selling to the press, by which he meant placing feature stories in papers and magazines. Whatever small doubts they might have harbored over RKO's prospective pub publicity efforts, however, the Disneys had a much greater issue with their new distributor, one they almost seemed afraid to broach. As naive as it may have sounded after their nearly 15 years in the film business, they had no idea what to charge exhibitors for the film, and no idea what RKO's return to them might be, which they fully realized made them vulnerable to RKO's machinations. The larger studios typically sold their films in blocks, so their advice wouldn't have been particularly helpful to a studio with only one feature to sell. What the Disneys needed was an independent producer to guide them, of which there were very few in Hollywood at the time. 
As it turned out, the knight who rode to their rescue was Walt's old idol, Charlie Chaplin. Chaplin offered to give the Disneys all his records and experience, most importantly his ledgers from modern times, which permitted Roy to press RKO to go out and ask Chaplin prices, and to get the same terms in foreign markets as Chaplin had gotten. Thinking Chaplin after Snow White's release, Walt called it an, an invaluable service and wrote, Your records have been our Bible. Without them, we, had, we would have been as sheep in a den of wolves. With the finances resolved, the day to which the entire studio had been pointing for years, December 21st, 1937, was finally upon them. The last week of November, Walt was filmed for a Snow White trailer, and the next week, the studio headed en masse to Pomona, an hour's car ride east of Los Angeles, for the film's first sneak preview, its first exposure to a non-studio, non-industry audience. As Ben Sharpstein remembered it, most of the studio's employees were not informed, and those who were, the top personnel, arrived at the theater unceremoniously in a bus. The audience was taken totally by surprise, but only a few walked out, which apparently was a rarity for a sneak preview, and the employees left the theater feeling a sense of elation, vindication, and anticipation. With the premiere impending, the animators were so enthusiastic that they picked up posters at the studio and tacked them up all over Los Angeles. The site of the premiere was the Carthay Circle Theater, a 1,500-seat Mission Revival-style house on San Vicente Boulevard near the Hancock Park section of Los Angeles and the place where Walt had first shown the skeleton dance back in 1929. The Carthay was an ornate palace where searchlights roamed the skies at openings, and the Snow White premiere was a gala event with grandstands packed with fans and dozens of Hollywood luminaries in attendance, a testament both to the expectations of the film and to Walt Disney's status at only 36 as an American icon. In thinking back on that evening, Walt would recall an incident that had occurred on the back platform of the train when he first headed west to Los Angeles. He was making conversation with a man there who asked what Walt did. When Walt said he was in the motion picture business, the man said he knew people in the movies and inquired what end Walt was in. I make animated cartoons, Walt told him, which was met with a steely disdain that Walt never forgot, and that led him to resolve that someday his cartoons would be afforded the same respect as live features. Now one was. I am convinced all our fondest hopes will be realized tonight, Chaplin wired Walt that day, but despite the positive screenings... The encouraging feedback and Walt's own brimming confidence, he still felt an inescapable anxiety, especially over how the audience would react to the dwarfs at Snow White's beer. The old anxiety over which people could and would be moved by animated characters. Walt entered the theater both euphoric and edgy. Well, it's been a lot of fun making it, Walt told interviewer Buddy Twist to a national radio audience less than honestly, and we're very happy that it's being given this big premiere here tonight, and all these people are, are turning out to take a good look at it, and I hope they're not disappointed. Asked if he was going to be watching the film himself, he quipped, yes, and have my wife hold my hand. But the nervousness that had slowly accreted from the years of imagining, scrutinizing, retelling, 
fiddling, mobilizing, and pushing, and from the huge debt of over a million dollars that the studio had incurred in the process quickly dissipated, I believe everyone in that first Snow White audience could have predicted the enormous success of the film, wrote the normally dyspeptic, dyspeptic animator Bill Peed. They were carried away by the picture from the very beginning, and as it went along, everyone was bubbling over bubbling over with enthusiasm and frequently bursting into spontaneous applause. Ken O'Connor, an art director on the film, said of the audience they even applauded the background and layouts when no animation was on the screen. O'Connor was sitting near the actor John Barrymore, who began bouncing up and down in his seat he was so excited when the shot of the Queen's Castle came on screen with the Queen pulling her boat through the fog. But the highlight, as Ward Kimball put it, was the beer scene. Clark Gable and Carol Lombard were sitting close, and when Snow White was poisoned, stretched out on that slab, they started blowing their noses. I could hear it, crying. That was the big surprise. We worried about the serious stuff and whether they would feel for this girl, and when they did, I knew it was in the bag. Sorry, I'm having a hard time not crying myself thinking about it. Uh... <laughs> That scene gets me every time, too. Everyone in the theater seemed to be crying and dabbing at his or her eyes, and at the end, the audience exploded into what one attendee called a thunderous ovation. Even the animators seemed to be in awe of the achievement. I don't know how we did it, Grim Natwick told an interviewer years later. I don't think anyone really does. I have made a wager that the picture will set up grosses nearing the record mark, and I expect to buy an Argentine pony with the money I shall win, producer Hunt, Str Hunt Stromberg wrote Walt after the premiere. Expressing their profound admiration, Harmon and Ising wired, wa wired Walt, Our pride in the production is scarcely less than yours must be, and we are grateful to you for fulfilling an ambition which many of us have long held for our industry. Producer Nat Levine compared it to the first sound film and said that in attending the premiere, I could not help but feel that I was in the midst of motion picture history. Director Cecil B. DeMille sent a telegram saying, I wish I could make pictures like Snow White. And even Joe Rosenberg, who had seemed so grudging at the September screening, wrote Walt, it's probably too soon to talk box office, but regardless of the latter, I shall always say it's a truly great job which you and your gang have done, and a lot of people will be happier for it. Oh, ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? <laughs> the reviewers were no less ecstatic. Writing in the New York Times after Snow White debuted at the Radio City Music Hall, New York's premier movie theater, Frank Nugent gushed, Let your fears be quieted at once. Mr. Disney and his amazing technical crew have outdone themselves. The picture more than matches expectations. It is a classic, as important cinem cinematically as the birth of a nation or the birth of Mickey Mouse. Time, which featured Walt in a color cover photo playing with models of the dwarfs at his desk, immediately declared it an authentic masterpiece to be shown in theaters and beloved by new generations long after the current crop of Hollywood stars, writers, and directors are sleeping where no princess kiss can wake them. I can't. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. I'm having a hard time not crying. 
Otis Ferguson and the New Republic went even further, anointing it among the genuine artistic achievements of this country, and columnist Westbrook Pigler would call it the happiest event since Armistice. Critic Gilbert Seldes, long a Disney admirer and advocate, was given a private screening and left saying he thought Metro-Goldwyn might just as well close their studios as long as you produce feature pictures. Even the communist daily worker praised the film, seeing the dwarfs as a miniature communist society and the vultures that attacked the queen as Trotska- Trotsky- Trotskyites? That's a weird word. These critical verdicts would be enthusiastically endorsed by audience reaction, and Snow White would become firmly entrenched as one of the most popular films ever made. Observers differed, however, as to why people loved the film. At the time of its release, many critics attributed its appeal to escapism from the turmoil of the world, just as they had done with Mickey Mouse. Frank Nugent, revisiting the film in the New York Times in January 1938, wrote, Wars are being fought as the picture unreels. Crimes are being committed. Hatreds are being wedded. Riots are being brewed. But the world fades away when Mr. Disney begins weaving his spell and enchantment takes hold. I can't. Uh, I can't. I can't. My eyes are watering up. Others cited the awesome power of the sheer technical achievement, the collaboration of the nearly 600 employees who drew, inked, and painted the quarter million drawings in what totaled 200 years worth of man hours. While no animated cartoon had ever looked like Snow White, and certainly none had packed its emotional wallop, it was also true that in none would the investment of time, energy, and devotion be so palpable. In some respects, it was the cinematic equivalent of a Gothic cathedral. Only in this case, all the man-hours were expended in service to one man's vision rather than God's glory. Beyond both the political traumas of the 1930s and the novelty of the film's technical achievement, Snow White also had more subliminal but no less powerful appeals. The jealousy of the queen towards Snow White's youth and nubile attractiveness provided a sexual subtext. The battle between one generation's fading sexuality and the succeeding generation's sexual awakening, the latter of which is literally rendered when Snow White receives her resurrecting kiss from the prince. Seen this way, Snow White and the dwarfs enact a kind of pubescent ritual of unacknowledged yearnings, a practice round of maturity, until the prince arrives to consummate her passion and bring her to adulthood. Though most viewers, and especially younger ones, obviously wouldn't have recognized these elements overtly, the sexuality was also a metaphor for something they most likely would have understood. As the child psychologist Bruno Bettelheim described the fundamental theme of all fairy tales, Snow White is about assuming one's place in the natural order, essentially about growing up, accepting responsibility, as Snow White does for the dwarfs and the dwarfs do for Snow White and taking over. And there's a note there. Bettelheim says of the power of fairy tales to help in working through complex problems for children, They speak about his, the child's, severe inner pressures in a way that the child unconsciously understands and, without belittling the most serious inner struggles which growing up entails, offer examples of both temporary and permanent solutions to pressing difficulties. 
The story is not only Walt Disney's expression of his own assumption of power, with the dwarfs representing his shorts and the prince representing the larger ambitions of the feature cartoon itself, but an expression of the assumption of power for everyone who has grown up or intends to, and it would become the matrix for all of Disney's great animations in which a child overcomes the hurdles and treacheries of the adult world and then finds his authority within it. In this idea of gaining control, the theme of the film and its technical virtuosity merged. Whatever else Snow White does, this most deliberated upon movie in the history of film conveys a sense of control, a sense of a fully fabricated world. For depression audiences specifically, as well as for the audience who would see the film in succeeding decades, Snow White's effect then was not so much in its escapism, as critics at the time of its release reported, as in, as in its suggestion of vicarious power. For children over their own lives and for adults over the real world that often seemed beyond their control. As much as viewers may have resonated with the personal story encoded within Snow White, the story of Walt Disney's assumption of power, which translated into the assumption of power for everyone, they also resonated with its wondrous sense of absolute discipline. In creating a world of his own from scratch, Walt Disney demonstrated, more fully and forcefully than ever before in his work, man's potential mastery, which had always been the inherent metaphor of animation. This was real strength. And at last, as far as animation was concerned, it ushered in a new era. After Snow White, one could not really go back to Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. One had to move forward. As Walt told a visitor who had come to the studio not long after the feature's release, we became aware that the days of the animated cartoon, as we had known it, were over. Now everything would be different. Stay tuned for more next Monday.